0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London,
2: I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: In some places, school meals are free for the most needy. In others, they're free for every child. We look at the evidence that the meals provide much more than just calories and consider what can be learned in places that are expanding access to free meals.
2: And Indians have long tended to prefer having sons to daughters that led to an unusually large imbalance in the number of boys to girls being born. That gap appears to be narrowing, which is good news, even if it's not quite clear why it's happening. But first...
3: Here he comes. The president has arrived on a motorcycle. His wife, Michele, is behind him on another motorcycle. He's waving, and he's going to give a speech. Before this, there was an air show with planes doing loops in the sky.
2: Sarah Maslin is our Sao Paulo bureau chief. And yesterday, she was at Brazil's Independence Day celebrations.
3: I'm standing near the military fort at the end of Copacabana Beach in a sea of yellow and green, Bolsonaro supporters who have broken through the barriers to get closer to the president. Now they're shouting, Lula, thief, your place is in prison. ostensibly this event is to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Brazil's independence. But it's clear from speaking to people that there is another purpose. I talked to Eduardo Oliveira, a former Air Force police officer. He says he wants to show the world that it's a lie that the Brazilian people don't support Jair Bolsonaro. And he says that if the electoral authorities declare Lula the winner, that all of these people here will go to war.
1: So we're
4: a little less than a month out from the first round of Brazil's election. And Jair Bolsonaro is trailing his leftist rival, former president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, who's known as Lula, in the polls by as much as double digits. So it's looking like he's probably going to lose this election. However, he claims he's actually winning. And it's looking like he may be planning something in case he does lose to not accept that election
2: result. Tell me a bit more about that. What are people worried that he's planning to do?
4: Well, for the past year or so, Bolsonaro has made it his mission to sow distrust in Brazil's electronic voting system. So despite the fact that Brazil's digital voting is well-designed, it's secure, it's been used in lots and lots of elections and, and really hasn't had problems, Bolsonaro has made it seem like it's a system that's totally vulnerable to fraud, Recently, he was asked on a nightly news show whether he would accept the results of the election if he does, in fact, lose. And he said he would if they are clean and transparent. And then he goes around the country all the time explaining all the reasons why he doesn't believe that they are clean and transparent. And this has actually been very effective with his supporters. Only 25 percent say they trust the electoral system a lot compared with 60% of Lula's supporters. And there's 31% of Bolsonaro fans that say they don't trust it at all. This comes out very clearly when you talk to Bolsonaro supporters. At a a March for Jesus rally in Rio back in August, one Bolsonaro supporter told us... (laughs)  — That this is a race between good and evil, and, you know, therefore it's impossible for Bolsonaro to lose. — Just look at all the people here, he said. — Only a crazy person would vote for Lula. — And for him, the polls just don't matter compared to all the people he's seeing on the streets. And for the reasons that Bolsonaro has said, he doesn't believe in the system.
2: So it sounds as though he's priming his supporters to doubt the outcome of the election. What could this mean for the elections themselves and for the aftermath?
3: Well, as an
4: American, of course, this reminds me a lot of what we saw in the U.S. election last year. Bolsonaro is following Trump's playbook to a T in a lot of ways. But I mean, I guess the difference is that Brazil is a much more violent country, and it's only been a democracy since 1985. The thing that people are the most afraid of is a coup. There's a lot of talk about a coup, and Bolsonaro is constantly praising the military regime that ran the country from 1964 to 1985, Uh, You know, in private, we've talked to senior politicians who don't completely rule out the possibility.
2: Sarah, how serious a possibility do you think a coup is?
4: Well, it's pretty scary that it's not completely out of the question. But there's also a much more likely outcome. I spoke about this with Vinicius Carvalho, an expert on Brazil's military at King's College London.
0: What worries me much more is the amount of people armed in the streets and many of them supporters of Bolsonaro that could create violent responses and destabilize the democratic process much more than the risk of the armed forces as institution, to not accept the result of that election.
4: And it's important to remember that even if Bolsonaro loses, he still has a lot of supporters. And also, a lot of Bolsonaro's supporters have a lot of guns. He has made it much easier for Brazilians to own guns since he became president. And so here, of course, we're really in the hypotheticals, but Bolsonaro could cite mass public disorder as an excuse to invoke extra emergency powers in addition to ones he already has because of the pandemic and postpone Lula's inauguration.
2: So he clearly aroused a lot of passion from his supporters. Who are these supporters? Where in society does the support come from?
4: So Bolsonaro's base, his most ardent support, comes from three groups that since the campaign in 2018 have been known as beef, Bible and bullets. You've got farmers, people in Brazil's agricultural heartland who dislike being bossed around by the government or by urban snobs. You have social conservatives, many of whom are evangelical, who fear an erosion of traditional values. And you have soldiers, police officers, and ordinary Brazilians who are scared of crime and want guns to defend themselves. So on this last category, we heard this sentiment on the beach in Baja de Tijuca, a kind of posh neighborhood outside Rio We spoke to a woman, a white woman, sunbathing, who said, Lula wants to give criminals human rights, but I don't think they should get human rights. They're not
1: human. That rhetoric
2: sounds to me strikingly like Donald Trump. Do you think that's a fair comparison?
4: Yeah, totally. And Bolsonaro panders to all of these groups. And I think the most important thing is he stokes their fears. His is a very fear-based campaign and communication style. Also like Trump, he's not really a conventional party boss. He's the leader of a movement. Like Trump, he depends much more on social media than traditional communication channels. And it's effective. His online fans are more engaged than Lula's. And he has these crazy rallies where his fans refer to him as Mito, 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 which means myth, but is kind of more akin to legend. And over the years, and especially in these months leading up to the election, he has built for them this kind of parallel, paranoid world that's untethered from reality.
2: So why is Lula beating him in the polls?
4: A lot of Brazilians blame Bolsonaro for the fact that Brazil lost more than 800,000 lives during the pandemic. He never took it seriously. He dragged his feet on getting vaccines. And on top of that, the economy really took a beating, especially for Brazil's poorest people. Inflation is very high. It's fallen a little, but that hasn't changed things very much for the Thirty-three million out of two hundred and fifteen million Brazilians who are struggling to get enough food to eat. Bolsonaro's response to this often seems kind of callous.
3: Porque não tem filé mignon para todo mundo. promete o paraíso.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, not everyone can eat filet mignon. Lula, on the other hand, has based his campaign around the argument that things were much better when he was president, and they were. Between 2003 and 2010, with the help of a commodities boom, he poured lots of money into social programs, helping the poor, helping the hard up. Income per head rose 50% on his watch. And the government started the famous program Bolsa Familia, which brought millions of the poorest Brazilians out of poverty.
2: Sarah, if I'm remembering correctly, Lula left office with an astronomically high approval rating But he then ran into some legal troubles once he was out of office. Do you think voters have forgiven him for those?
4: That's right. When Lula left office in 2010, he had a sky-high 80% approval rating. But the government of his successor, Dilma Rousseff, was tainted by a recession and a vast corruption scandal. Lula himself was convicted of accepting bribes in the form of a flat and renovations of a country house. He spent a year and a half in prison between 2018 and 2019. His convictions were ultimately annulled on a technicality. The whole case was totally polemic and he maintains his innocence. But as the leader of the Workers' Party, you know Brazilians do still see him as being involved in that corruption. The question is just whether... That's a more important negative against Lula than all of the problems that voters now have with Bolsonaro.
2: And do you think it is? What have you found during the course of your reporting?
4: The polls right now certainly suggest that more people have forgiven Lula But to try to understand some of their reasons, we went in Rio de Janeiro to a favela called Alemão that voted for Bolsonaro in the last election. This time, we heard a lot of people saying they're going to vote for Lula because the economy is so bad, and also for fear of some of Bolsonaro's more iron fist security policies. In Alemão, we saw young members of drug gangs sitting by the street with submachine guns, and yet residents complain more about the cops than about the criminals. There was a police raid in July that ended in 18 deaths in Alemão, and this is the kind of iron fist policy that Bolsonaro applauds. We talked to a young mother who said something that I've heard a lot in the U.S. She told us that she tells her six-year-old black son that when he sees the police, he should stand still because the police could mistake him for a drug trafficker and try to shoot him. We spoke to one woman who said, it's a war here. She said, if he could... Bolsonaro would drop a
6: bomb on favelas.
2: So, Sarah, it sounds as though Brazil has had a rough few years. Do you think that Lula, if he's elected president, and if the country can avoid the coup you suggested as possible, that he can fix the problems that Bolsonaro has grappled with and in some cases exacerbated?
4: I think it's going to be really, really tough, John. I mean, I think... You know, on the one hand, Lula, for all his flaws, doesn't live in a fantasy world. He doesn't incite violence the way that Bolsonaro does. He says he plans to cut back on deforestation in the Amazon, which is increased by half under Bolsonaro. He will try to expand the social safety net for poor people. But on the other hand, he's going to have a really tricky economic situation, a Congress that includes a lot of supporters of Bolsonaro. Some of the experts we talked to pointed out that if Lula has a really difficult time governing, he's unsuccessful. That could lead to disillusion that even propels Bolsonaro or one of his politician sons back into the presidency. And given how the past four years have gone for Brazil, that's a really scary thought.
2: All right, Sarah, thanks so much for your time today.
4: Thank you, John.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: In the county of Surrey in England, children have been returning to the classroom this week. For some year threes, that's seven and eight year olds, it means a new school and a new lunch menu. Sausage rolls. Potatoes.
4: And beans and tomatoes and cucumber and salad and sweet corn. And
2: how did it compare to your mummy and daddy's cooking?
1: It's much better. (laughs) These children have had school meals before, and they've been free. But when they get to this academic year, their parents have to start paying for them. In some parts of the world, schools give all children free meals, and it seems more jurisdictions are exploring the potential benefits of doing the same.
5: Well, big disasters such as the great financial crisis have often prompted governments to expand school meal programs. And in the wake of the pandemic, new spending on school meals is again under discussion in all sorts of places.
1: Mark Johnson is The Economist's education correspondent.
5: Over the last two years, we've seen meal programs expand in countries as varied as Rwanda, Scotland, and New Zealand. And this summer, California and Maine became the first American states to make school meals permanently free to every child.
1: And what do we know about the benefits of free school meals in the first place?
5: Well, school meals are sometimes described as the world's largest social safety net. So they're they're one of the most effective ways of making sure that poor children do not go hungry. But I think what is not often well appreciated about school meals is the the sheer variety of the benefits that they can bring. Uh, Providing healthy meals is not only about staving off hunger, it can limit obesity. We've long known that poor countries that provide meals are more likely to have children attend and increasingly the evidence confirms that it drives up how much children can learn when they're in the classroom uh, kids who are well fed find it easier to concentrate they're less likely to disrupt lessons for others and providing food is also an important step towards lengthening school days which in quite a lot of the world end at lunchtime
1: and what's the the diversity and in, in the way this is accomplished in in various places
5: Well, school feeding programs exist in every shape and size. So the biggest program is in India. Uh, The program there is universal in government schools. It feeds about 90 million children every day. Uh, Behind that comes Brazil, which feeds about 40 million children. That's also a universal program. And in rich countries, there are also universal school meal schemes in Estonia, Finland and Sweden, among other places. The majority of meal programs in the world are not universal schemes. England, for example, feeds all children in the first three years of school, but only about 20% after that. China's program feeds around one quarter of all its pupils. And there are some rich countries, such as Canada, that have little or no school feeding program at all.
1: So if there are all of these benefits, many of them quite clear, why why isn't this a universal issue? Why doesn't everyone do it at, at all levels?
5: Well, the the places where huge numbers of new meals would do the most good are poor countries, largely low-income countries. And the main obstacle there is the price. So the World Food Programme guesses that supplying meals in low-income countries costs about $55 per pupil per year. But these countries actually only spend something like $70 per pupil per year on their entire education systems. So providing meals to pupils is not a small cost at all in that context. And so raising that money is difficult. In poor countries, a lot of that comes from donors. But there are divisions in the donor world that can make fundraising more complicated Donors that are interested in nutrition often prefer to target their funds at preschoolers. Donors that are interested in education often think that there are many cheaper ways that they can improve a child's schooling. But I think that the real benefit in poor countries is that although there do seem to be interventions that might, on the face of it, produce better results in school for less money... Uh, A lot of those are quite complicated and and beyond the ability, the capacity of what these governments can do. Programs that involve retraining teachers, for example, and making sure they stick with the new practices are quite easy to mess up, even if they don't require huge outlays of funds. But um, even very poor countries can usually find people who are able to cook and serve meals.
1: You've spoken mostly about uh, the poor world there, but you you started by talking about California and Maine. How does that fit into this, this bigger picture?
5: So during the pandemic, as an emergency measure, America's federal government made school meals free to every child in the country. The the idea was that this would reduce form filling and other kind of formalities that might have prevented school canteens from finding innovative ways to make sure that kids could keep on getting meals at a time when the pandemic risked stopping that. Now, Most American schools have had to go back to charging starting this academic year for children who uh, are not among the poorest. But some states, such as California and Maine, have decided that they're going to put some of their own money into this program to keep meals universal.
1: So in that sense, is what's happening in California and Maine going to provide a kind of natural experiment to, to shore up the idea that it's money well spent?
5: Well, fans of universal meal programs in rich countries argue that offering food to everyone can sweep away barriers that are presently preventing some needy kids from benefiting from existing schemes, perhaps because of loopholes in the means testing criteria, or uh, because of stigma of eating the meals that can make children that uh, are eligible for them choose not to. There are some studies uh, that suggest benefits from making school meals universal. A study in Sweden, which rolled out universal free meals region by region in the 1960s found that both rich and poor children benefited. Children who ate free during their primary school years earned about three percent more over their lifetimes than those who did not. That was true for for rich children and for poor ones. But there have also been underwhelming findings around the world from universal meal schemes when. Meals were made free to all infants in England, for example. The number of older children eating meals they were entitled to actually went down, perhaps because so many more children were going into canteens that service slowed and older kids decided they couldn't be bothered. And so all new information about exactly what difference this makes would be valuable to policymakers who have to decide how to spend government's money in the best way possible. I think there is no doubt that providing millions more meals could have transformative effects in poor countries. I think in rich countries, the benefit from going from schemes that exist at the moment to fully universal ones are somewhat thinner and yet to be proven.
1: Mark, thanks very much for joining us.
5: Thank you.
2: If you had to guess how many women there are to men globally, you'd probably estimate around an even 50-50 split. Statistically, the birth-sex ratio is closer to 105 boys per 100 girls. And in some places, including India, this gap is a lot higher. That's long been a concern.
6: So a common sight across India is a billboard that has a cartoon of a girl in pigtails and the slogan, Save the Girl Child, Educate the Girl Child across it.
2: Azania Patel writes for The Economist Foreign Desk.
6: This is a public service advertisement for the government's $85 million campaign to correct the country's sex ratio at birth. And this ratio is skewed towards males with about 111 boys for every 100 girls, according to the 2011 census. But this is starting to change.
2: Let's talk about the imbalance before we talk about the change. How did it come about?
6: So India is a patriarchal country in many ways, and Indians tend to prefer having sons to daughters due to dowry expenses and just general expenditure when it comes to having girl children. So because of this, they seem to abort female fetuses in chillingly large numbers. So, this ratio was fairly close to the global norm, which is about 105 boys to about every 100 girls. Until the 1980s, this was the norm even in India. But in 1980, prenatal ultrasounds became widely available and abortions also became widespread. So, abortions were legalized in India in 1971. So, with this combination, the sex gap just increased, even though the government has had long standing policies to mitigate this problem. In fact, the government outlawed fetal sex determination in 1994, but this restriction was and continues to be flouted by doctors.
2: And you say this imbalance is starting to change. How?
6: So a new report from Pew Research Center shows that the sex gap has begun to normalize. And it suggests that India's current sex ratio is at 108 males per 100 females. And while this doesn't seem like a very big change, the sheer size of India's population and the heavy socioeconomic costs of a gender imbalance at birth make even this incremental improvement very significant.
2: How so? Why is this change so important?
6: We've seen that countries that have less gender equality, of which sex skewed ratios are an indicator, are associated with poor economic performance. This gender imbalance also increases rates of violence and crime. Statistically, unmarried men are shown to have high rates of committing violent crime. And when there are fewer women in the country, fewer young men get married. And especially when this ratio is so out of whack, these problems get magnified. For example, Indian states that have the worst sex ratios, like Haryana and Punjab, also have some of the worst rates of violent crime. These states also have instances of bride buying in which illegally women are purchased from poorer neighboring states and then treated quite poorly as they are purchased women who function as wives. So the crime and gender inequality ratio seems very related in these instances.
2: They do. Do we know why this is changing?
6: So it isn't exactly very clear, but the government's billboards, which I mentioned earlier, may have played a part. So this Save the Girl Child, Educate the Girl Child campaign was launched in Haryana, which is one of the states with a very bad sex ratio in 2015. And it was very targeted towards northern Indian states, which have highly skewed ratios, Also, from some other factors that might play in, generally, we are seeing higher levels of education, especially amongst women in India, and better educated parents tend to be less eager to abort female fetuses. And between 2015 and 2020, the number of Indian women enrolled in higher education increased by almost a fifth. However, this isn't to say that things are going perfectly well and everything's fine and dandy because there's still some work for gender parity in the country. Female participation in India's workforce still remains dismally low at just over a fifth, according to World Bank estimates. But, well, at least there is now a prospect of fewer missing girls at birth in India.
2: All right, Azania, thanks so much for your time today.
6: Thank you so much, John.